What makes an investment alternative? I've always had a love-hate relationship with the name because on one hand, it can turn a lot of people away because if it's alternative, that must mean not a lot of people do it, right? But on the other hand, if a lot of people don't do it, doesn't that also mean there's tons of opportunities within that space? Today's guest, Dennis Shapiro, author of The Alternative Investment Almanac, is so well-versed in almost all alternative investments that he's been able to really successfully use a mixture of alternative with traditional methods to build incredible cash-flowing portfolios for both active and passive investors. We'll hear from Dennis just after a little bit of information about us and who we are. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, managing partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors, welcome to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I'm sitting down with Dennis Shapiro. Now, Dennis began his investing journey Back in 2012, when he built cash-flowing portfolios with alternative investments like notes, ATM funds, mobile home parks, life insurance policies, almost anything that you can really think of. He's also co-founded investment clubs for accredited investors and continues to make investing passively for cash flow simple for accredited investors through his proven systems. Dennis, thanks so much for coming here. We're really excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, so I want to dive into something here that we talked about before with your alternative investments. Um, a crazy term for me because in a lot of people's opinions, real estate is still considered an alternative investment. But I want to dive into something that I think you have a lot of experience in that a lot of people don't, and that's with those ATM funds. Can you tell us a little bit more about investing in ATMs? You know, How did you even get into that? So ATM funds is one of those categories where it wasn't like I just jumped in. I kind of approached it with a healthy level of skepticism just because of the way that the returns are structured. A typical investment, whether it's an apartment building or any type of investment, there's a certain amount of cash flow you get during the life of the project. And then there's a certain like windfall you get when the project sells. ATM fund, that's kind of reversed on its axis. And what ends up happening is you get a large amount of cash flow. And then at the end, those ATMs basically are depreciated down to zero and they're basically worthless. So it's a very unique model. And what I like about the model is that it actually complements more traditional alternative investments like your apartment building syndications, where it will be like a four or 5% cash on cash in year one. And then it'll kind of take two, three, four years to really build up there. The ATM funds can allow you, if you incorporate into your portfolio, we incorporate into our income fund, it will allow you to get that higher yield from day one. So it can allow your longer appreciating assets to do their job. I've been hearing about ATM investing a little bit more frequently. You know, the first time I heard it, I kind of brushed over it. And then the second, third, and fourth time, it was hard to ignore. But I've heard that as well. So why do they essentially depreciate down to zero? Because the ATM itself, does it just lose its function? Is it just that you have to move them different places? Or why exactly does that happen? It's just when was the last time you saw an ATM machine that's more than seven years old? There are certain technology security components to it. It's just more of a technology and the banks usually want to have the latest ATM. So usually the life cycle is just seven years. 
Got it. So seven years, but you're getting that larger cash flow up front. So I really like what you said about complementing other investments because sometimes people do look at like apartments and they say, well, the cash is really low. It's only a couple, three, four, five percent, maybe even less the first few years if it's a heavy value add. So that kind of turns people off. But if you have multiple facets of things, you can get like to the higher yield for the first few years while your other investments build up. So is it pretty common for people to invest in ATM solely? You think that's just one facet in what should be a healthy portfolio that includes a lot of other alternative investments? It's part of a diversified portfolio. It definitely shouldn't be someone where they're 90% allocated into something like an ATM fund. I did a lot of research on ATM funds when I was writing my book, The Alternative Investment Almanac. One of the chapters I dedicated was to ATM fund investing. And what I came across during my research is that unfortunately, because ATMs is such a heavy cash flow business, it also attracts a lot of unscrupulous operators. There were funds out there where they said there was 4,000 machines and there was one-tenth of that out there. So there were a lot of Ponzi schemes in the ATM industry. I only really follow one reputable name, but then there's a lot of derivatives from that one name where the underlining fund is that one fund, but then there's a couple of people that have their own brand of that fund. So you think that there's a lot of options out there, but it all kind of stems down to this one major player that I follow. Wow. Yeah. And I've heard that as well. I forgot what podcast it was on, but talking about essentially that exact same thing because the cash flow is so heavy up front, it's really easy to disguise things or really just outright lie. So definitely doing your research and making sure that whoever's handling your money, whether it's through funds with multiple things like you run or ATM specifically, making sure that you're able to do your due diligence on that. How can investors say they are going to look into doing something like that? What type of due diligence can they do ahead of time to make sure that those things are actually happening, like they are actually investing in these certain amount of machines or getting a certain return? What are some steps that they could take to, I guess, protect themselves from some of those operators? I would put the same kind of due diligence on every industry out there that kind of like the returns kind of almost seem too good to be true. I would definitely put ATM funds in one of them. There's a reason why it took over two years for me to actually invest in it. And part of it was because of the due diligence that we did from a fund perspective. I would like to take a lot of credit from the following due diligence steps that I'll kind of go over. But honestly, it's from a much more seasoned investor in the space. And we outlined the due diligence steps in my book. But some of the basic stuff, and this is so like rudimentary that it almost seems like a duh type response when you hear it, is to actually get a list of the locations where the ATMs are supposed to be at and actually physically spot check a couple of those machines. And you wouldn't believe how simple that is, but a couple of Ponzi schemes that I saw, how they did it was they just inflated the number of operational ATMs that they had in circulation. And so there was one scenario where I think I mentioned there was one-tenth actual ATMs. So if you would have went and picked a random ATM, you would have had a 10% chance of actually finding it there. And then if you did two, those chances would have dropped to 1% and you would have discovered at that time it was an ATM machine. It was a fraud at that point. The other common sense steps is doing background check on the operators. This comes from one of my advisors in the space where they did a background check and they found that the person actually was convicted of SEC fraud with credit card terminals. So it's like, okay, they did credit card terminal fraud. It's probably not a good idea to invest with them on ATM machines. The second step would be to do a background check. Then there's also certifications you should be familiar with. I forgot the exact 
acronym, but basically it's an industry standard. And it would be like a financial institution is actually auditing those ATM machines. So after every step of due diligence, you're kind of protecting yourself. And then there's like the last steps is usually this is reserved for like really big investors where some of the ATM fund would let you actually log into their terminals to see live the transactions that are going on. Wow. And you're not going to get that for like the minimum type of investment. But if you join an investment club that does invest in ATMs and a big chunk of money, usually you could get that extra layer of safety by kind of joining forces with them. So you talk about building that investment club, because I feel like a lot of people are in that space where they might feel like they're too small to demand those things. Maybe they only have a couple of $10,000, $100,000, a little bit more. So they don't really feel like they're in a position to really leverage us. So clubs is a great way of doing that and really joining all your cash together and really creating a really big, I guess, player in the space. A lot of investors know that they should network, join different clubs, but it can be both intimidating and even unfruitful to network around and do a lot of clubs. What are some of the advantages or some of the things that people should look for if they're looking to join an investment club? It's me and two other individuals. It's actually a private club. We're not soliciting for members or anything like that. We actually had to turn down people because there's some people that did want to participate. But what ended up happening was we just came to the realization that private securities were really expensive and we could just do more together than apart. So the typical private security investment is usually 50,000. That's the industry norm. We kind of got together, we knew each other, and I would definitely put the word investment club and marriage as basically one and the other, because you're kind of getting in bed with these people. Mm -hmm. So it's not something you should be like, hey, I just met this guy at Aria, we should join forces and do an investment club. This is like, I was talking to my business partner for nine months on like a daily basis. And I knew more about him than I did my wife for those nine months. But when we got together, it was me, him, and another individual, we grouped forces. And what it allowed us to do is instead of doing two, three syndications separately and compare notes, we were able to form one LLC and actually invest as that group. And we built a pretty diversified portfolio. The main thing we got was we leveraged knowledge because doing one deal is good, but doing 10 deals is 10x that in terms of the knowledge, which variables work, which operators are hitting it, which operators are not. That allowed us to do all of that. The big nuance I will say on investment clubs is if anybody's looking to do one themselves, they have to make sure that whoever they're with is going to be actively involved. Because if another member is not actively involved, then what you end up doing is creating a security. So if it's like you and your Uncle Bob, and your Uncle Bob is like, hey, this sounds great. Let's join forces and do this LLC. And your Uncle Bob is like a mechanic, and you're the one that brings the deal. And your Uncle Bob says, oh, this is great. This is great. If that ever gets audited down the road, then that will fall apart and you would have needed a security document. Now, if Uncle Bob's a mechanic, but he's also looking at the pitch decks and he's also given the green light before actually investing, he's asking questions and he's participating on the investor calls and all of that stuff, that's 100% fine. It's that active involvement that's key. And that's why we keep our investment club to three people just yeah. because of that reason, because we don't want it to ever get where the active involvement is a question. And that's becoming a huge deal and seems to be every election cycle, they talk about, hey, getting more strict on those things. But I forgot what Biden is doing this year, something like investing another half a trillion dollars into auditing systems and things like that. So really keeping on top of what you need to have happen to be able to do these things. I mean, we're investing money and that road is really bumpy in what you can and cannot do. 
Now I want to talk about what you had said before, because it's really, really important is when you're investing with these people, you're marrying them, you're getting into bed with them for a minimum of a few years. Most likely if you're investing more, that turns into many, many years. So what are some things that people should consider? Let's say I have a couple of friends and I know them personally, but never invested with them. What are some things that you should, I guess, talk about or discover before joining forces and forming this type of club with each other? I would say like the basics have a well-outlined operating agreement, who's responsible for what, checks and balances where not one person is responsible to like do the distributions where it's like, hey, one person does distribution, second person has to okay it. Really good record keeping, all of that stuff. So you want to make sure that when you're getting to bed with these people that they can actually bring in some time and effort. And they also have complementary skill sets. Like my two partners on my investment club, one of them is a tech guy and one of them is a crypto guy. And I'm the commercial real estate guy. We have very, very different skill sets and backgrounds. And it's one thing where if all three of us were in commercial real estate, we probably just would do all commercial real estate. But to get the perspective, get their perspective on the deals, I have one guy, I call him the no guy. And every time we were going to look to invest, it was like a quick no from him. And then I had to kind of like sell him over. And during that process, some of the questions were really valid and warrant. So you don't want a bunch of yes people and you want people who will be able to complement your skill set. That's so important for the team, that complementary skill set. Do you mean personality skill sets? Like, hey, I'm a people person. Hey, I'm an analytical person. Or do you mean investment knowledge? Like you said, you're the real estate guy. Another guy does mostly crypto. Or is it a little bit of both? Or what exactly do you mean when you talk about that complementary skill set? A little bit of both because you are going to be working with these people. So First thing I would say is like, you got to like these people because you will be interacting them considerably, but you don't need like the typical organizational team. My fund interacts with investors and that's a different skill set. So I don't really need a people person in my investment club because we're not raising money through the investment club. So it's a very different skill set. We just need the best possible team to hit our goals. Like there's no actually other members, but when we picked us three, we did so really strategically. What are the implications, I guess, for expanding that if somebody has some people in mind, or maybe they're starting a small investment club, is the steps from going from three to four, then from four to five, enormously different? Or is it okay to kind of slowly scale like that? Are there a lot of other implications besides you said the the SEC and the securities requirements, you got to really stay on top of that? Yeah. So the SEC thing, that's the first thing. And that's something you obviously should seek advice from SEC attorney, not a regular business attorney you will get very different information. A business attorney will err and they'll usually say, oh, you have an operating agreement, you're usually fine. And SEC attorney will be very, very specific and they will drill you on the active involvement of the members. But it's also how you structure your investment club. There's a billion different ways. We joined our funds into one LLC. So it would be complicated at this point to bring in a fourth person because now we have to figure out valuation on the current assets. Now, there are investment clubs. What they do is they'll present the deal to the group and then the people in the group will individually go and invest in that specific deal. That type of club, there's absolutely no difference between three, four, five, six, seven, a hundred people because those people are individually dealing. They don't even have an operating agreement, nothing. Like we literally have one LLC, one operating agreement. We do a lot of our deals together. And then we also do deals where 
then club invests, and then we invest alongside the club. So it's very customizable. But the way we did our fund, it would be very complicated to add an extra person. But a typical investment club or investment community, I would say, is not difficult at all. Is it a club or is it more of a community where there's less stringent guidelines? It's less formal. I mean, I could be in a group of 10 or 15 investors and we can talk about a deal and it not be a club because if you don't like it, you don't understand it, you can just walk away. It's not a formal agreement. So I think it's really important to distinguish that because I think when a lot of people think of an investment club, they think of like you said, hey, they're local RIA or a local, hey, we like stocks. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a real no joke. There's an agreement. We're all members of this there's voting rights and there's votes that have to happen and things like that. So definitely a big difference there. I'd love to talk more about your book that you have coming up, The Alternative Investment Almanac. So might go without saying, but what do you define as an alternative investment? Because like I said, in the beginning of the show, I mean, a lot of people consider real estate alternative and really anything outside of the stock market to be alternative. So can you tell us, I guess, how that term has evolved in recent years, what do you consider to be alternative? Is it real estate? Is it anything outside of the stock market? Is it things that are more unique? Or tell us a little bit about that. So while I was researching my book, I was trying to find a very clear definition for what alternative is. Exactly what you're saying. There's this vagueness where it's everything outside of stocks and bonds, and that's including ETFs. And when I say stocks and bonds, I literally mean anything that's publicly traded. Now, the easiest definition that I kind of agree with is anything that's not publicly traded and that falls in the private world, I consider an alternative investment. That's why I don't consider like, oh, if you invest in a REIT, And you say, well, that's my alternative diversification. So I would say the big difference is whether or not it's publicly traded or it's not. And for you to get the benefits of the alternative world, it needs to be privately traded. Privately traded company doesn't mean like Shark Tank exclusively. You don't have to invest in these startups. Real estate are businesses and those are private companies. And that's considered the private sector as well. But you said really shortly there, hey, the benefits of the alternative investments. What are some of those and what's really driving a lot of people, maybe not totally away from the publicly traded, but at least looking, hey, maybe I should diversify with something outside of this segment? Yeah. So this is the whole origin of my book. So I started trading publicly traded stocks when I was 14 years old. So I had 20 years of traditional experience, the whole mutual funds, ETFs, individual stock picking. My portfolio kept appreciating, but I kept having problems with creating income. I did the REITs, but then the REITs would give me good yield, but then the market crashes and all that yield is gone. I did the high yield stocks. I did the utilities. Everything always failed. Then I kind of got into alternative. I did the whole single family rental route, and then I went more passive and just some of the stuff you mentioned. And what I realized was that the yield was just so much better. Now, yes, it was a little bit of a headache. I can just log into my brokerage account and see what the value is in my private securities. But what I started, I kept going back and forth, which one's better, private or public, private, public, private, public. And then I got to the point where I stopped saying like a verse situation. I just said, what happens if I just marry the two? Stop treating them as two different portfolios. So I could autopilot my public. At this point, I'm just like low-cost index funds and keeping my life simple. I spend 1% of my brain power on that. And now I could spend 99% of my brain power on alternative investments. And what I realized is that because it's private, it's not liquid. And that's considered a big drawback. But 
if you look at it from a perspective is if you have liquidity already with a decent sized public thing, you could use that liquidity. You don't need to be 100% liquid all the time. Now, what that lack of liquidity does on the private side is it evens the ride where you're not going down 10% just because the market's down 10%. A great example is March 2020 during COVID. The stock market for the month was down 34%. Every REIT was also down 34%. Now, my private securities, and it's the same underlying asset, apartment buildings and all the other commercial real estate stuff I had that, they didn't trade hands because it was private. So because of that, I was down zero on that front. So it's that balance. It's that smoother ride where you never actually ever have to trade your public. You never have to panic with your public portfolio if you have a healthy amount of private securities that are doing what they're good at. And I've heard that as being a big reason of driving a lot of people into that private sector or alternative sector too, is because of what happened in COVID when those public sector things just fluctuate so much. And even when there are recessions and things like that, and as COVID progressed, some real estate did lose values, but they went really, really slowly. And it gives you quite some time to adjust as opposed to literally overnight things tanking, like you mentioned, 34% or greater, depending on what you're in. So for the people who are hopefully looking to get a little bit more educated on the topic, I guess when's a good time to look into those alternative investments? Should you have a certain amount in publicly traded? Should you have a certain amount saved up? Are there any good rule of thumbs for you and your experience? Or when's a good time for somebody to start looking at those alternative investments and maybe pick up a copy of your book? So selfishly, you should just pick up a copy right away. But non-selfishly is that alternative investments take time to learn. I have a whole sequence of what you should do when you're getting started. But they have their own language, like commercial real estate, alternative investments. They have key terms where you have to be aware of. They also involve some networking where you need to have people that you really trust because there's no analyst reports. It's like if you want to go by Google or Microsoft, you could go in and there's 50 analyst reports. You read those, you could make your decision and you could spend a whole week doing that research. In the private world, when a specific apartment building in a specific market by a specific operator goes online, you're not going to go out and you're not going to be like, oh, what's going on with that? There's not 100 reports on that specific deal. You need to have a network in place. And that doesn't take one day. So it's not that you should start investing day one, but you should start building your knowledge and alternative investments today if you plan on potentially investing in the next two years. Dollar-wise, I would definitely say that the average is usually that $50,000 number. I've got personally burned when I tried to do like crowdfunding on the smaller. When I first started out, those seemed appealing, oh, 10,000, you could get yourself into a portfolio. Almost every single one of those deals underperformed tremendously, where I would have been way better off of saving up and doing one fifty thousand dollar investment, even yeah. diversification wise, it's better to do five tens. So there's definitely a quality, and some of the even more well known operators they don't even do fifty; they do a hundred or two fifty. So there's certain benefits, but start day one learning, and that doesn't require you to have a certain net worth or anything like that. It just requires you to have a healthy curiosity for what else is out there. Yeah. Why do you think that is that those underperform? Do you think it's an operator just as an operator, if they are accepting, you know, lower amounts for their investment, which is not always a red flag, but it is something to consider, you know, why are they taking 10 or $20,000 when most are taking at least 50? Do you think it was an operator thing or do you think it's just the nature of having smaller dollar amounts in investments? 
what I learned from my experience was that one, it was a technology company disguised as a real estate company. Hmm. Like you're going to be hiring people and they're going to be vetting these deals. What is their background? Are they commercial brokers? They're not. And what ends up happening is they have a checklist. And as long as the deal fits that checklist, they have no feel for the deal. Not every platform is bad. There are some platforms that are good. And the platform that I personally, unfortunately, had experience with was not very good. But there are certain platforms that are reputable. But I would say this, that it doesn't matter what platform you do choose. What ends up happening is the most powerful part about alternative investments is that the learning that you can get from it, where by us doing our investment club and getting 10 to 12 deals, we had such a wide encyclopedia of knowledge. And if we took those 10, 12 deals and just did it on a crowdfunding platform where we never got to talk to the operators and we never got to deep dive the deals and we never got on phone calls with the operators and all of this stuff, we would have lost that potential knowledge that is now serving the base for almost everything we're doing. So part of it is that these companies out there, they come off as real estate companies, but they have a really nice website and it looks really user-friendly and they got these great testimonials and they got the five-star Google reviews, but they're not real estate companies. And when your underlining investment is real estate, you want real estate people to be behind that. They might have the science down, but not the art, which real estate, you definitely need both for multiple facets of the business. So one more question about your book, Alternative investing, it's kind of broad and you have a ton of experience. We're talking about notes, ATMs, life insurance, real estate. What are some of the topics covered? Is it an overview of all types of alternative investments? Do you deep dive into a few certain ones or what can people expect? Yeah. So it's a deep dive into a few certain ones. The way I structured the book is that it's a high level intro into the topic. So I think I start off with two life insurance. I do the infinite banking concept. I get into life insurance settlements, which is a really cool topic that not many people really talk about. But then it goes into the apartment buildings, the mobile home park, self-storages, ATM funds, the notes, multi-asset funds. And then I think I have something on startups. And what it does is it allows you to get a glimpse of the asset class, the nitty gritty of it. And then it gets into Q&As with two investors from the space. And that's really my favorite part about the book. And it's the same Q&As for every single asset class. So what allows the reader to do is read one chapter. They don't have to spend 300 pages reading on apartment buildings to realize, hey, I like it or no, I don't like it. Or apartment buildings seem interesting, but that risk of a Ponzi scheme is too much for me. So now I could just move on to the next chapter and it's a whole different asset class. I love it. So Dennis, I mean, this has been really, really awesome. Love talking to those private sector alternative investments. I think it's something like you had mentioned before, it's just not talked about enough among people. We've been so trained to go to the stock market and do those publicly traded things that it really is a disservice that people are not aware of the different types of things that they could be doing with their money. How can people get a hold of you or potentially look more into the book? Yeah. So the book is found on Amazon, the Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. If you just put my name, Dennis Shapiro, Dennis with one N. The best way to actually reach me personally is if you go on my website, sihcapitalgroup.com. What I did is I created two abridged versions from my book. So there's an abridged version of the Q&As, and then there's a abridged version of the actual content itself. And if you join my email list, you get both of them. And then if you like what you have, just reach out to me and make an appointment. 
We'll put uh, the links to those two items in the show notes as well, listeners. And while you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you also grab our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow with Your Multifamily Real Estate. All those links in the show notes. Dennis, thank you so much for coming by. We were super, super excited to have you. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me.